Alrighty. Good morning. Guys, welcome to Grace. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, if you don't have your own Bibles, uh, you, there should be pew Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. And uh, if you're uh, looking there, we will be on page 980 of the pew Bibles. If you don't have either of those, most of the text should be on your screen. Uh, we are in part two of our uh, new five-part series called The Foreigners, a Living Christian in an Unchristian World. And so turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be working our way through verses 14 of chapter 1 on into chapter 2 and up to verse 12. And so quite a large chunk. Always good to have your Bibles in front of you. And uh, if not, the text should be up on the screen. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 14, as we uh, now get into the part 2. View uh, Part 1, uh, Peter writes to Christians who are feeling pressure from the outside culture. Uh, they're under persecution and will continue to be under persecution, but the pressures they face are not uh, terribly unlike ours. They face religious pressure. They face moral ple- uh, pressure. They face governmental pressure. And all of these things are making it difficult for them to be Christians in their world. And I suggested last week that uh, these are the same forces, the same pressures that make it hard for us to be Christians in our world today. First thing that I wanted uh, us to see, the very first thing off the bat that Peter wants these Christians and us today to know as we face pressure from the cultures to know that this is not our home, but instead we should long for our true home, which is in heaven. And that's what Peter said. He gave them an eternal perspective. He said, I know it's hard, and though God may send suffering and trials your way, uh, they're brief and they're momentary, and you have this living hope that you can endure, knowing that you're not supposed to fit in here, that you're not supposed to look the same as everyone else, that this is not your home. You shouldn't get comfortable. Uh, This morning in part two, I've entitled the sermon, Live Differently. Peter not only says, hey, you should long for home, on, and, and in a, a pretty good section of his, cha- uh, of his book here, he says, not only should you long for home, but there should be something uh, different about you. You should live differently. He calls it being holy. And so this is of great encouragement to us today. And so uh, essentially what he says is, it's okay if you look different. It's okay if you act different. It's okay if you don't agree with the people in your culture and in your world. You should stand out. You should be different. And though that draws pressure from the world, be encouraged because that's the way it should be. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right into part two of the foreigners living differently. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. Uh, Thank you that they've come together um, to hear from you, Uh, not from me, uh, but from you. Uh, This is indeed your inspired and authoritative word to us, and we're so very grateful for the man, uh, the great apostle Peter, who penned this long ago to Christians long ago and far away, who, although very different from us, are very similar, because they named the name of Christ, and they were feeling it from the culture around them. They were feeling it uh, from the, from the, politics of the day. They were feeling it from a culture that did not like their moral stands. They were feeling it from a wide array of of religious pressures that were wanting them to to conform. And Father, we feel these same pressures today. And so help us to be attentive to your word. We thank you that you have uh, sent Peter to write to them, and we thank you that you have sent Peter to write to us on this very significant topic of how should we live Christian when the world around us is not. And so give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, help us to be attentive. Father, put any and all thoughts of this afternoon or or the week ahead um, away from us so that we might hear from you. 
the most significant thing you want us to hear this week is from your word. And so help us, we pray. Give me grace that I might speak accurately and truthfully, powerfully, so that we all may be blessed and changed, so that we may all live differently and live Christian in an unchristian world. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior, and God's people said, amen, amen. You know, one of the things that you notice when you're a foreigner in a foreign land is Lost my mic. No, I'm here. Okay, great. Uh, one of the things about living foreign, not plugged in. Okay, hold on. Here we go. How's that, guys? Can you hear me? Thumbs up? Wonderful. Okay. If we go off, I'll just yell at you. Okay, how about that? <laughs> one of the things that when you are a foreigner in a foreign land is that you notice a couple things, that you do things differently than, than they do, and that they do things very differently than you do. It's a different culture, and that different culture affects your lifestyle. And so, you live differently than they do. Um, one, of, uh, one of the couples in our church, Dan and Barb Schumacher, just recently got back from uh, a, a country far away, the country of England. Um, and uh, I've had a chance to talk a little bit with both of them, mostly Dan. And uh, just in passing conversation, I was asking him what it was like and you know, what, did, what did they do and how is the culture different? And he said, you know, I, I made up a, t- a top 10 list, a top 10 list of things that I learned about England. I said, oh, I'd love to see that. Can I have it? And, and, and here I have. In my hands. I'm not, uh, you know, David Letterman, but in my hands, I have the top 10 list from Dan Schumacher about the things, top 10 things I learned about in England. And, and my guess is that what Dan learned is that they live differently than us, and we live differently than them. So here they are, in case you want to know the top 10 things that he learned. Number, number 10, in descending order, there's no sales tax. That sounds pretty good, right? Uh, but I think there is a value-added tax. Is there not? Yeah, they kind of stick it to you there. There's no sales tax. Uh, number nine, there are no billboards along the highway. He said it's very different when you fly back into Chicago and to O'Hare and then you drive in Chicago and they're plastered everywhere. He said there are no billboards along the highways in England. Uh, number eight, every building is made of brick and is old. That is at least 100 years old and probably significantly longer than that. Uh, Number seven, all of the roads are smooth and paved, but none of them are straight. Uh, Very different than how our roads are here. I think all of them are straight, but none of them are smooth, (laughs) right? And they're very maybe paved. (laughs) Uh, Number six, he says the light switches are upside down. I said, what? tell me about that. And I still, I don't know enough about that, but he said, essentially, it's upside down. You want to flip up, and instead you have to flip something down. Very odd. Those silly Brits. Number five, uh, nothing moves before 8 a.m., mostly by 9 a.m., and preferably 10 a.m. That sounds pretty good, right? Don't have to be at work till 10 a.m. Sounds good. Number four, roundabouts. We had a, a, a lengthy conversation about a roundabout. He said this, he said, roundabouts add excitement to driving. Consider a four-way stop where nobody stops. They just drive in a circle in the middle. <laughs> if you've never been on a roundabout, they're a little intimidating, but pretty cool. You don't have to stop. Just kind of barge your way in, right? Uh, number three, he says the tube, which is the subway system, really is great. Mind the gap. If you've ever been there, you know that that means there is a gap between where you uh, step off of the platform onto the, uh, the whatever it is, train, right? So mind the gap. Number two, trash cans and toilets can be hard to find. Not a good combo. Beer, however, is not. <laughs> Good thing, I guess, for some. Uh, number, number one, this is the, the, the first thing that he learned, uh, number one on his list about England. You may be from America, but you don't speak or understand English. <laughs> 
You can ask Dan about what that means later. Um, I just wanted to share that because Dan was a foreigner in a foreign land. And what this articulates is that they live a very different lifestyle because of their culture. What Peter is going to say is that being a spiritual foreigner is about similar. It's very similar. We are spiritual foreigners in a spiritually foreign land, and as a result, we hail from a different culture. We come from a different lifestyle, and it should affect the way that we live so that when we go to a foreign land and we live in the spiritual foreign land, we, we should have our own top ten list of the ways that our life is different from those who are around us. And so I want to summarize uh, take a peek up, uh, up there on the screen. If you don't get anything, get this. This is, this is where we're going. Uh, the message of this morning is this. This is what I think Peter says to us, God says to us in these verses. He says this, Because of who God is and what he has done, we are to live differently from the world in every facet of life. And so because of who God is, because of, because of what he's done to us, these are the motives, we're to live differently. That's the mandate. We're to live differently from the world in every facet of life, and that is the model. And so let's take a look at what Peter has to say this morning. First of all, he gives us the mandate. If you're taking notes, three M's, the mandate, verses 14 through 16. The mandate is to live differently. That is, we are to live differently from the world. Let's begin in verse 14 as as Peter gives us this mandate for living differently. Verse 14, Peter says this, As obedient children... Notice the images he, image he, he begins with. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so uh, beginning in verse 14, he, he uses this imagery of living differently, and he calls us obedient children. Now this is, a, this is family language, and, and it kind of runs through a good section of this text. Uh, the idea is that we are God's children because we've been born again. He introduced that image last week. We've been born again. We've started again. And this time we've been born again into a different family, a different spiritual family. Satan is no longer our father. Uh, God the Father is our Father. Uh, the Bible tells us that we've been adopted into his family. So he is our Father and we are brothers and sisters. And that's the image he uses. And then he, and then he says, listen, since you're my kids, I want you to obey, right? Since you're my kids, I want you to be obedient children instead of disobedient children. Those of us who have been children, we know what it's like to be obedient. We know what it's like to be disobedient. And those of us who are parents know exactly what an obedient child acts like and what a disobedient child acts like. And he says, I want you to be obedient as my born-again adopted kids. This looks like a couple things. First of all, uh, negatively, it means we shouldn't conform to the patterns of the world. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, uh, do not conform, right? Don't conform and then he says, to the evil, evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. He was talking about the desires, the passions that led to the lifestyle that we had before we were born again, before we became Christians. He says, don't, don't go back there, right? Don't, don't conform yourself to those kind of uh, standards, to the world's pattern. And the image here he's, uh, of conforming is the idea of pressing something onto something else. And then uh, the second object conforms or begins to look like uh, the mold. It's the idea of a mold pressing a, a pattern onto something else. And so a simple illustration is that of a cookie cutter. Now, how many of you, uh, well, you don't have to share, but many of you, oh, Dan, you do. I was about to say, how many of you like to bake? Dan, I'm glad you like to bake. 
You bake us some cookies, man. Uh, you know, when you're baking, I don't know if I've ever baked cookies and then actually made them look like something. I think we own cookie cutters. I don't know where they are, and I don't know if I've ever used them before. But that's the idea. With a cookie cutter, you make cookies, and then you press that, that image, so to speak, onto the cookie so that the cookie is then conformed to look like the mold, right? That's the image that Peter uses. And, and, he, and he says the world is like this large cookie cutter, and it wants you to conform to its image. It wants you to, to look like it. It's, it's pressing in on you so that you begin to uh, shape your decisions and attitudes to look like that. And he says, don't, don't do that. Don't conform to the world's pattern negatively. But then he says, positively, we need to do something else. Instead of conforming to the world's pattern, we need to conform to our Father's pattern, to, to the example that our Father has given us. Look what he says in verse 15 again. He says, but just as he, who's he talking about? God the Father. Just as he who called you is holy, so our Father then is holy. And then he says, so you need to be holy just like your Father, right? So instead of taking the cookie cutter of the world and allowing the world to shape you, what you need to do as a, as a child is then look up to your Father, you need to look at your father and see how he lives and what his character is like and what his actions are like. And that, in a sense, is what we need to be shaped or molded after. He says, look, look at your dads. Look at your dads. And so at the very beginning in verses 14 through 16, he says, listen, we're to live differently from the world. That's what he says. We are to live differently from the world, both negatively and positively. And this is, this is a general mandate. And so we're going to move on. He, it's like he says, this is what I want you to do. And then he's going to share with us some motives. He's going to share with us in the next section the motive for living, the motive, the motive for living different. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about the model. Well, what does that look like? So he's going, to, he's going to flesh this out for us. But he first says, hey, be holy, live differently, right? We've seen the mandate. And then moving on to verse 17 through 21, I'll call it the motives. It's the motives for living differently, it's because of God, who God is and what he's done, right? Remember our message. Because of who God is and what he's done, we're to live differently. So here he, he addresses the motive question. This is so significant, right? I mean, as Christians, I can get up here and I can just tell you, this is what God says and this is what you need to do. But inevitably, when you go to work tomorrow, when I go to work tomorrow, when you spend time with your family, there's always a question of motive. I mean, why? Why are you doing this, right? What is the motive? What should drive us to not conform to the world, but to conform to the image of our Father? Well, in my humble opinion, he gives us two motives. So jot these down if you're taking notes. Because of who he is, and because of what he's done. Notice in verse 17, it's, it's because of who God is in verse 17. And what Peter says is that, listen, God may be your heavenly Father, but he is also your judge as a Christian. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So the first reason he gives us is because of who God is. He is our judge. He, he, he shifts the image of, of God. Yes, he is our heavenly father, and, but at the same time, in a sense, he's, he's also our judge. He's going to be the one who takes uh, and evaluates our life. Now, let me be uh, very clear here. I think the kind of judgment that our father, as our father, will give to us on that day is not a, a judgment for heaven or hell. When you trust in Jesus Christ for your sins, that matter is settled. You're going to heaven. You will be with him. You are adopted into his family. And he's not going to disown you, okay? That's what the Bible says. And so 
Uh, He's not going to be our judge in the heaven and hell sense, the eternity sense, but numerous passages, including this one, affirm the idea that God is still, as our Father, He still judges. He evaluates our life as a Christian for what we did. Were we obedient children or were we disobedient children? Jot down a couple texts. If If you're taking notes, Romans 14. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12 supports this very clearly. Uh, and then a second, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, very clearly state this idea. And so because of who God is, he is our judge, what then should we do? Well, it, it says, how should we respond to the fact that he's going to evaluate our lives? Well, he says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. I think that's the idea of respecting God, not only as our father, but as the one who's going to evaluate us. And then in light of that future coming evaluation as Christians, it should shape how we make decisions. It should shape our attitudes. It should shape whether we're going to be obedient children or disobedient children. Now, I've got an illustration, and and I'll try my best. No illustration is perfect, but this is kind of the way I see what's going on here. Uh, Growing up, one of the things that was very significant for my mom and my dad, uh, especially my mom, but my dad certainly agreed, was how I did in school. Uh, My mom was a math teacher, so you know, got to be good at math, or at least got to try hard at math. And I come from a family of educators, and so education was very important. Now, I knew that uh, when it came time for six weeks' grades to come out, I knew that my performance as a student, as, as a son, as my father's son, and as a student, would be evaluated, right? You see there's a 98 by PE, or a 75 by math, or whatever it is, right? There's an evaluation that happens every six weeks, at least uh, when I grew up. And I knew that as a result of how I did that semester or that six weeks, that my dad would judge that, in a sense. He would take my actions, and he would evaluate it, and there would be consequences either way. If I did well and I made all A's, there would be positive consequences. It would be a positive evaluation. But if I did poorly, uh, there would be consequences the other way. But what I knew was that regardless of if I made all A's or if I made all F's, what my father would not do is say, you made all F's, get out of the house. (laughs) I knew he wouldn't do that because he's my dad and he'll always be my dad. And and that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, recognize that he's your father, but he's going to evaluate you. And so live accordingly. Live accordingly with that future evaluation in mind. That's, That's the first reason. And that's reason enough, right? Report cards are coming, right? As Christians at the end of our life, Report cards are coming. But then he gives a secondary reason, as if that wasn't enough. And the second reason is this. Not only because of who God is, but because of what he's done. Because of what he's done for us. And that's found in verses 18 through 21. What is it that God has done for us that should motivate us then to live differently? To be obedient kids instead of being disobedient kids? It's one word, and it's the word redemption. He's redeemed us. Let's take a look at verse 18 through 21. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, there's our word, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but has been revealed in these last times for your sake." 
Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So now your faith and your hope are in God. Quite simply, he says, the second motive is because of what God has done for you. He has redeemed you. Now, the image of redemption, you may know or you may not know, is the image of buying a slave out of slavery. So, in those days, what, one of the ways you could get out of slavery, not like our common kind of United States slavery, is that if you were enslaved, you could get out. You could purchase your own freedom. Somebody could purchase freedom for you from the outside, or you could earn money to eventually get yourself out of slavery. And this is the, the idea of redemption. It's the idea that what God has done for us in Christ is that he's purchased us out of slavery to the former way of life. Notice that, the former way of life, the passions that we used to follow before we were Christians, the poor decisions and the sins that we committed before we were Christians. It's like we were living this lifestyle, and the Bible says it was slavery. Now, it might have felt like freedom, and I remember when I was 15, before I became a Christian, it felt like freedom but it was slavery because I was enslaved to my own passions and my own lusts and my own sin. I was enslaved and Jesus Christ says, I will pay the penalty for you. I will put down the price. And what he says is that the price for our being redeemed out of that kind of lifestyle was the very blood of Jesus. He says, listen, it's not like God said, oh, here's some silver, here's some gold. That's enough to get you out of that way of, that way of life. He said, no, it's much, much more precious than silver and gold it was the very blood of my son. I, uh, yesterday, I don't know if you noticed, I, I, I performed a wedding, and I got a text from someone who said, hey, there are going to be some other Aggies at this wedding, so you should wear your, your Aggie ring. Now, you notice I don't have it on. I never wear it. Um, but she said, there, there are going to be some other Aggies here in Illinois, so you should wear your Aggie ring. And so I did. I put on my Aggie ring, and it's big and blingy and gold, and, I, you know, I love it, but it doesn't mean anything here, so I don't wear it. Uh, and, and I met these Aggies, and we, we looked at each other's gold rings and, you know, told stories about A&M and yada, 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 right? Uh, but it was, uh, then Asher said, hey, why are, why are you wearing that ring, you know? And I said, oh, I, I tried to explain to him, oh, it's gold. And then he said, well, you don't always wear it, so after the wedding, why don't you just throw it away? <laughs> right? He said, just throw it away. I said, well, I may wear it later, and, and it's very expensive. And so I went on to, to explain that it was pure gold, and it cost me, I don't know, $500. And the other $500 was paid for by the, by the school, and it's very expensive gold ring, you know, I don't want my fing finger to be, you know, taken away if I go to Chicago, you know, and he said, just throw it away. I said, no, no, it's, it's precious, you know, it's precious. What, what Peter says is, listen, it's not with that kind of precious silver and gold that you were redeemed. No, it was with the precious blood of his own son. He, he said, think about it. The cost to get you out of that kind of lifestyle could not be higher. That's what he says. It could not be higher. You've been redeemed. So why then would you keep living that way? Why would you go back into slavery? You know, I'm not a history buff, but I have been told by reliable sources that upon uh, the declaration of the emancipation of the slaves by President Lincoln, who's hailed from here, that numerous slaves, even after hearing about their freedom from that kind of lifestyle, chose voluntarily to stay, to stay in it. It was all they knew, and they didn't want, in a sense, a different kind of lifestyle. They were free. They had been freed from that kind of lifestyle, but they chose to stay. And what Peter says is, you've been set free, but don't go back. Why would you go back? Why would you stay in that kind of a lifestyle? And so he's talked about the motive. Listen, be obedient kids. He's talked, uh, the mandate, excuse me, then he's talked about the motives. 
because of who he is, because of what he's done. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time here on the model. I call it the model for living differently. What Peter now does in verses 22 of chapter 1, and he runs it all the way through chapter 2. We're going to stop in verse 15. He's going he's gonna to give us a model. What does this look like? Okay, Peter, we're, we're supposed to be obedient kids. Okay, I get it. Okay, there are motives here. Okay, I get it. Well, what does that look like, right? Well, he's going to give us five areas in which we should live differently than the world. I, I call it in every facet of life. He, he really gives us five facets of life. It's not exclusive, right? There are more areas that our Christianity should affect, but he just names five. So let's jot the first one down in our model for living differently. He says, first of all, in verse 22, we need to love other Christians. That's what he says. He says the very f- first thing about being an obedient child is that you love your siblings. That's what he says. You want to be an obedient kid? You want to obey your father? Then love your sister and love your brother. Verse 22. He says this. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, talking about how their sins are forgiven by the gospel, so that you have a sincere love for one another, and then he gives the command, love one another deeply from the heart. Not just love one another. He wants us to know that we need to love each other deeply from the very center of who we are. You know, what Peter says is that when you're born again, you become a Christian. You're like a baby Christian, right? You're like a newborn life. Your old life is gone. New life has come. And he says that you're born into a family. God is your father, and every Christian in the world, and especially the Christians here at your local church, they're brothers now. They're sisters now. You have a new family, and you should see them as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, when I got saved, I got saved in a Baptist church, and we can make Baptist jokes all day long, and I like Baptist jokes, you know. Uh, But one of the things that was, was very different, but I grew to appreciate, was that they would call each other brother, brother Trey, brother Jim, sister Sue, sister Pam, sister Mary, whatever. I mean, not just to the pastors, like, it was familial language, and I was like, I'm not your brother, dude, you know, get off me, but, but, and then I got saved, and then I came to realize, oh, I was, I was their brother and their sister, and it was a wonderful thing. He says, when you're born again, you have this newborn instinct, and your newborn instinct is to love, care for your siblings. It's uh, one of the privileges of having kids, I think, is though oftentimes they fight with one another and they hit each other and there's, you know, there's some of that stuff going on. But one of the neat things to see, at least in our home, is how especially Piper, the, the younger one, loves on her big brother. I mean, he walks into the room and she's excited, ba 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 right? There's a natural affinity to love him and, and she'll run up to him and she'll just throw her arms around him, give him a big hug and if he's crying and upset, he'll, she'll come and pat his back, you know, just kind of pat his back to, hey, you know, I love you. It's, it's a marvelous thing to see siblings love one another. Now they don't do it perfectly or all the time. And neither do we as Christians, right? But he says, there's this instinct. You're my sister now, and I'm going to love you like a sister. And so, does your love for other Christians set you apart? He said, we're supposed to live differently from the world. Do those who are in your family, in your schools, at your job, do they see how you relate to the people here or other brothers and sisters, and they say, that is different? Or do you love like the world loves, only when it's reciprocated, only when it's convenient, only when the person is lovable? He says, first of all, man, we should live differently by loving each other. Second, 
in chapter 2, he says, not only should we love each other, but he said, there are some attitudes we need to remove. So he says, secondly, remove some attitudes. He says, as God's children, there are some house rules, so to speak. You're in the family of God, and you're in the household of God, and there are some family rules that we need to abide by. There are some attitudes that you need to avoid. Now, I brought this sign with me because my cousin Kelly down in Texas uh, made this for us, I think for Christmas one year. And I don't know if you can see it, but it says family rules, right? I'll just read you a few of them. Uh, We have this up in our kitchen. Uh, So certain attitudes that we're supposed to have and not have. Be kind. Forgive. No whining, hitting, or swearing. Say your prayers. Uh, Let's love one another. Be honest. Be thankful. Eat your food, right? So these are the things that she came up with, and uh, it's, it's uh, you know, family rules, right? This is how we're going to act. These are the attitudes we're going to have when we're in our family, right? Well, this is what Peter says. He says, listen, there are family rules, and there are some attitudes that you need to remove. There are some attitudes you need to remove. The first one is found in verse 2 of chapter 1. Therefore, rid yourself. So take these away. Rid yourself, remove, literally. We'll talk about that in a second. And then he lists, uh, I think there are uh, maybe five things. Um, Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So he says, listen, these attitudes are, are not in conjunction with your new family. We, malice is essentially wanting to hurt someone. Deceit is uh, deliberately lying with the intention to hurt someone. Hypocrisy, we know what that is. Envy, it's being resentful to the point that you don't want them to succeed. And then slander, well, telling lies that, that hurt other people. He said these things are very common in the world. Like, they're very common in families in the world, and they're very co- common in all of our workplaces. This is, this is what people do. These are the attitudes. These are the family rules of Satan, right? And he says, so we need to remove them. Literally, rid yourself of them. It's the image, Peter uses the image of taking off clothes that have been soiled, that are dirty, and they're stinky. He says, it's like these attitudes, you wear them, right? And they're like soiled clothes. They're like dirty pants. They're like stinky socks. That's the wording he uses. He says, these are the attitudes that you can wear, and what you need to do is you need to take off those clothes, and you need to take a shower, right? That's what he says. You need to get rid of them. Now, after I go running, and my running time is just about up, because it's getting below 50 degrees. But when I go running outside, um, I work up, yeah, I know, I'm from Texas. I just can't handle it, okay? Uh, so when I get in from running, Asher almost inevitably says, hey, did you go running? And I said, yes, I've been running. And he, you stink, dad, take a shower. <laughs> almost all the time, you stink, dad, go take a shower. I'm like, yep, I do. I need to take a shower. He doesn't want me to be clothed in stinky clothes. Well, Peter says, hey, listen, these are the house rules. You don't need to wear these stinky attitudes. You need to take them off. And so I want to ask you, any of these attitudes, are, are they pieces of clothing that you're wearing? Are you wearing the shirt of malice? Are you wearing the clothes of hypocrisy? Are you wearing the stinky socks of envy or maybe the hat of slander? He says, you need to take a shower, right? You need to take these attitudes and these actions off daily. Thirdly, he says, we need to love Christians. We need to remove some of these attitudes, these these family rules. And then third, he says, we need to crave the word. That's the third thing that should differentiate us is our attitude to the Bible. He continues to to use the image of children in verses two through three. Let's read that together. He says, like newborn babies, right? 
There's the idea. We're born again and we're like babies. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Uh, Talking about the Bible. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so third, he says, listen, like a baby, you're born again and you're like a spiritual baby and and you continue to be to some degree as a Christian like a baby that should hunger for milk, right? We're familiar with this. Uh, We need to hunger for milk because that's how we grow. Babies have an innate sense of wanting milk because they know that when they drink the milk, they're going to grow. Maybe they don't know it, but something in them God's put. They, they know. They crave it. They, they long for it. And they won't take no for an answer, right? Uh, he says, listen, in, in the same way, we need to persistently pursue the Bible. We need to value it. Just like the baby values the milk, we need to demand that we have it. We need to have it regularly as a baby eats regularly. Um, it's not at all uncommon in my household. Uh, the way that we work Piper is we feed her a bottle of milk, uh, I don't know, 9.30, 10 o'clock every night. She's, a, she's asleep, stick the bottle in her mouth, she stays asleep, and we pray that she sleeps as long as she can, right? And typically in our household, anywhere from 4 o'clock, like it was last night, I think, to 6 o'clock, like it is very seldom, uh, she wakes up <laughs> and she cries, And we try to encourage her to, you know, go a little bit longer, but when she really wants her milk, when she's really hungry, you all know they're persistent. They cry, and they cry, and they want their milk. They they need the milk, right? And so Peter says, listen, as Christians, that's how we should be as as it relates to God's word. We need to long for it and love it. And so, Christian... Are you feeding yourself a steady diet of this spiritual milk? And is it causing growth in your life? Or like the world, do you reject the value of it? Is it not important to you? Is it insignificant? Are you a malnourished spiritual baby because you're not drinking your spiritual milk? If you are, then you're not being set apart from the world because you're not being changed by it. So fourth, we've seen... Love other Christians, remove some attitudes, crave the word. And then fourth, he says, treasure, treasure Jesus. This is the fourth way that we should live differently. It's how we relate to Jesus Christ, what we think of him. Uh, to, to continue to use the family image, we're born again, we're spiritual babies, God is our heavenly father. And the Bible likens Jesus to our spiritual big brother, so to speak. He's like our big brother. Now, he's different than us. He's unlike any of the other children of God, so to sense. He's the, he's the unique, the only begotten son of God, right? But in a sense, as you see in Hebrews chapters one and two, as our ladies are going through, he humbles himself and he, he, he becomes human and he's unashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And so, Fourth, we need to treasure him as our big brother. This is what he says in verses four through eight. Notice, notice the contrast with how Christians treat Jesus and with how the world treats Jesus. Verse four, as you come to him, the living stone, speaking of Christ, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He gives a quote in verse 6. Now in verse 7, he says, Now to you who believe, okay, so to the Christians, this stone is what? Precious. This stone is precious. But to those of you who do not believe, 
quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone, speaking of Jesus, that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And then Peter comments, they stumble because they disobeyed the message, which is what they were destined for. And so the simple point that I want you to see is that what sets us apart from the world is that Jesus is precious to us. He's our everything. We value him above all things. He's precious, but this text says that the world rejects him. They don't care about him. They don't love him. They don't desire him. They don't recognize him, right? But as Christians, oh, he's everything to us. And so, do you treasure Jesus as first in your life? Is this true of you, Christian? Do you orient your life around his mission, around his teachings, or like the world, is he just a religious figure? Listen, you can come to church every single Sunday, and Jesus cannot be precious to you. You can come and sit here and sing the songs and listen to me drone on and on and on, and Jesus, you don't care a lick about him. You don't care. And that's a sign that you're not a Christian, because Christians love Jesus. He is everything to us, and we would give our lives for him. Fifth, he wraps up our time by saying the last way we should be set apart and live differently is we need to live moral lives. That's the best language I could use to summarize this. We need to live lives of such moral quality that it distinguishes us from the world. Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as, here's the language again, I urge you as foreigners and as exiles, okay, to do what? To abstain from sinful desires, he's kind of talked about that a little bit, which wage war against your soul. Oh, do they not, Christians? I mean, do they not wage war against our souls? He says, live such good lives. There's There's the morality part. Live such good lives among the pagans, that is, unbelievers, Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Listen, what he says is that our lifestyle, our morals should be so different that when somebody comes against us, when there's an unchristian, they have an accusation of it uh, against us, and and everybody in the town gets word, what they're going to say is, oh yeah, I could see Pastor Trey doing that, or oh boy, I could see uh, Mrs. Jones doing that, or well, yeah, I can believe that. No, what they would say is, Listen, there's no way. There's no way that he would do that. There's no way that she would do that. They, they, nobody will believe the accusation because the quality of our life is so high that nobody would believe that we could do such a thing. That's the kind of morality that, that he's talking about. And then he says, if we live that kind of moral lives, he says that it may lead to salvation to people on the day that they vis- are visited by Christ. I don't exactly know what that means, uh, glorify God on the day when he visits. What I think it means is when the day that God visits the person who was once an unbeliever and now they're a believer because of what you've done. It can mean something else, but that's what I think it means. And so he says, listen, that's the kind of moral life that we need to lead. And so if someone were to observe you constantly, would they have a legitimate case to slander you? Would they, or would they be interested in, in Jesus Christ because of the way that you live? To wrap it up, we've seen uh, three things. We've seen the mandate. He says, be holy as I am holy. We are to live differently from the world. We've seen two motives. He says, because of who God is and what he has done. And we've seen the model 
we've seen five facets of our life that we should be different from, that should cause us to live differently. You know, Dan gave me his top 10 list, top 10 things that he learned about England. You know, 10 things that are so different when he visits that country that he recognizes that his lifestyle here in America is different. I want to ask you a question. If someone were to write a top 10 list for your life, if they were to write a top 10 things that I learned about Christianity from your life, could they do it? Would they have 10 things to list? Would there be 10 such distinctions that they could say, listen, I see the way that you live and it's utterly different than the way that I live. Just like uh, the lifestyle and the practices in England are so different than America. What, what, would, what would their list be? Could they do that? Are you living so differently that that's the case? What Peter says this morning is it's okay to be different. As Christians, this is what we need to hear. It's okay. Not only is it okay, it's good. We're called to be different, regardless of what kind of pressures that brings. He says, because of who God is and because of what he's done, we are to live differently in the world in a variety of ways. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us many things. And there's a lot of things that we need to know about living differently. Father, we confess that if we took an honest evaluation at many uh, areas of our life, that it would be not very different than the people who live around us. Father, may you change that. May you help us to, to be all of these different things in all of these different areas. May we recognize that we have a mandate to be different and that we have some wonderful motivations to be different people as Christians. And it should uh, sink in and seep in to every area of our life at work, at play, in the family, and so on and so forth. And so may it be that. May you help us to shine brightly on the hill as lights in this world, different as those who stand out, regardless of what it means, regardless of how they treat us, regardless of what they say. May we be different because you, our Heavenly Father, are different. And so give us grace. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's do this. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. I'm going to read a blessing from uh, our, our, our book in 1 Peter, and then we'll leave. The blessing is uh, from 1 Peter chapter 4. He says this, If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. See you next week.